Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of The Medic Philosopher. This week I'm finishing a very interesting book I should have read a while ago actually. It's called Bad Science and it's written by Ben Goldacre who happens to work just across the road from where I live. I'm a big fan but sadly I've never crossed paths with him to tell him that in person and to get my book signed. In fact I've read another great book of his called Bad Pharma. You get where this is going. Anyway. Today I wanted to make an episode to briefly discuss some of the common biases we get in medicine. It's important to recognize them so we can refine our methods in the quest of truth, or put it simply, so that we can get more accurate answers to our questions. Say you test the pill. You've come up with this great tablet and you want to see if it lowers your blood pressure. What do you do? Do you give the tablet to your friend and measure his or her blood pressure? Would the results be meaningful at all? In a way, to those of you scientifically minded, I like to think of this example in mathematics or geometry. Say someone asks you to prove the Pythagorean theorem. It states, by the way, that the square of the hypotenuse equals the sum of the squares of the other two sides in a right-angled triangle. You draw a line, measure the sides, apply it, and boom, you're correct. Does that mean that you've proven it? Well, the good news is that you're correct, but the bad news is that this is not a proof. Equally, a reduction of blood pressure in one patient certainly is not a proof that the drug is working. So clearly you need to design a trial to test your hypothesis, although you may think that a trial is the best form of evidence, because it must be, right? Once again, sadly, it is not. For one, most trials aren't done properly, and then even the most robust evidence comes from pooling the findings of well-conducted trials and analyzing them systematically, and then you throw in some statistics and create what's called a meta-analysis, or the best evidence we have out there. If you want to be pedantic and correct me, go ahead, yes, a meta-analysis of a meta-analysis would be better than a single meta-analysis. We could go on forever in this loop, but I'm sure you have better things to do, and thankfully so does the scientific community. As Voltaire puts it, judge a man by his questions rather than his answers. So, well done, you've asked the right question. Now you organize a trial to test your latest pill. Let's go through the different pitfalls to be aware when designing a trial, just in case you plan one over the next few days, you know, as you do. Bias can start even before you give your medicine. Yes, you heard correctly, and that's selection bias. Say you only pick hospital patients in your trial. You would assume they are there for a reason, so more likely to be unhealthy and thus more room for your intervention to work. Even better, you can assign patients to two groups based on their characteristics and cherry-pick. Um, this is because you have to test your intervention against something, to make sure that the results aren't secondary to placebo effects, so you kind of have to have at least two groups. At this point I should explain placebo. Placebo is a dummy pill, um, in that it doesn't contain any active drug whatsoever, it can simply be a sugar-coated blank tablet. You should include them in your trial, to make sure that the effects you're seeing in the treatment arm aren't simply the intervention itself, just giving a pill. Patient takes the pill, expects to feel better, actually does better. But ideally, you should test your drug against the gold standard medication in the field. So in our example, uh, another very good blood pressure lowering medicine. But the scope of this episode is neither on how to make an ethical trial, nor how to design the perfect trial. More on that another time. We are here today to recognize bias. And on this point, I should mention, one of my favorites is when you compare your tablet to the gold standard, so your trial looks ethical, right? But you're giving the gold standard in less than half of the dose. 
or in inadequate preparations, or even less frequently. What better way to make your peel look better than to interfere with each competitor? Say you then run the trial, and you get some results. Not quite the results you expected, even though you did everything you could to interfere so far. Some selection bias, you didn't randomize, you didn't blind. What I mean by that, let me just mention, randomization ensures you don't cherry pick cases. Um, people come in and they're you know, randomized by a random number generator into different groups. And then blinding is when the patient doesn't know what drug they're getting and the physician doesn't know what drug they're giving either. This is called a double blind trial, which I'm sure you've heard. Sometimes you can even triple blind if the statistician analyzing the results doesn't know which group is which. And that prevents common biases our intuition would lead us into. Worry not, there is still room to fiddle. For one, you can change the question into something different that your data can actually answer. In our example, blood pressure may not have dropped as expected because your drug doesn't really work, but actually, Patients felt better, or, you know, they, they lost some weight, so yep, our treatment's great. You could, if you really wanted to, add some more patients, or take a few out, or avoid analyzing the dropouts, which usually have done worse because of side effects or no, no effects, so they dropped out. Um, and you could do that to find a statistically significant result. Um, what I mean by that is that the benefit of your drug is most likely not due to chance alone. That's what statistically significant means. If that fails, look into surrogate outcomes. In fact, blood pressure is a surrogate outcome by itself, so I'm guilty all along with this. Why did I choose this example? Anyway, what I'm trying to say is, why does it matter to measure a patient's blood pressure? Why does it matter if it's low or high? Well, it doesn't mean much to the patient, does it? What matters is the sequelae of a high blood pressure, such as a hemorrhagic stroke, for example. Often. Studies will look at surrogate outcomes because they're easier to test and often to find significance. Sadly, we humans crave positive findings and are attracted to positive results. One of the reasons why publication bias exists, but let's not go into that, is exactly this. Well, essentially, publication bias, since I've mentioned it, means that positive findings are more likely to be publicized than negative findings. And you can already start to appreciate what this is a bad thing when we base life and death decisions on literature and the evidence we have as doctors. In other words, we are only as good as the information we have. I don't want to bore you with the details. You can play with a baseline, extend the trial until your drug shows benefit, give too much of the other drug so it's toxic, and so on and so forth. I certainly do not claim this episode to be an all-inclusive on bias. This was not my intention. My intention from the start is to encourage you to ask questions. This is the first step to getting an answer. And, as Richard Feynman puts it when asked about hypotheses, quote, if it disagrees with your experiment, then it's wrong. In that simple statement is the key to science, end quote. Now, where does all this tie in with philosophy? Philosophy helps us formulate the questions, the hypotheses, if you like. It also equips us with the realization that we should not take things at face value because especially when it comes to science, our instincts can deceive us. Yes, our instincts may be great when it comes to running in the jungle to escape from a predator or finding cover or finding water. That's how we evolved. But indeed, it is the same usefulness of our instincts in everyday life and social life that renders them so true and dangerous when doing science, because they are the doorway to bias. And we have seen that science itself is not always reliable, 
Large clinical trials may not be well conducted. Misinformation is worse than no information at all. We are being lied to as doctors all day and we accept it, choosing to read the abstract and not the paper. The devil is in the details. I won't go into how much the rest of the public is being lied to, as all this information is then filtered by journalists and deviates further away from the truth than you could ever possibly imagine, but I think I've made you cynical enough. And if you want to become even more cynical and even more informed, I would strongly suggest Ben Goldacre's books, Bad Science and Bad Pharma, both are excellent. So I'll leave you with a question. Say you're a doctor. You know how the placebo effect works. In fact, this was common knowledge in ancient Greece, in healing temples called Asclepia, long time ago. My question to you is this, would you ever use a dummy pill to treat one of your patients? Thank you for taking the time to tune in and I hope you found the show interesting and motivational. This is The Medic Philosopher, until next time.